You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Barza. This week, we have Sarah Goh, who is partner at Greylock, a top Silicon Valley firm who's backed some incredible companies like Instagram, LinkedIn, Figma, Airbnb, and more. And Sarah herself is the fund's first female and previously the youngest partner. We not only cover the fund and her portfolio, but we also dive into her anti-portfolio and current trends she's interested in, like the future of work. This episode is supported by Euronext, the leading pan-European stock exchange. Hi, Sarah. It's great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Super. Well, I think a lot of people have probably heard the name Greylock. You guys are a top Silicon Valley firm. You've backed some incredible companies like Instagram, LinkedIn, Figma, Airbnb. I mean, the list is just like goes on and on. Um, you yourself, if I'm not mistaken, are the fund's first female partner and youngest partner. I want to know, how did you land there? Uh, yeah, this is um, uh, a kind of uh, just serendipitous story in that I had intended to um, start or join a very early stage company as in my in my next role. And at, uh, in my work at Goldman Sachs in the Bay Area, I had met two of um, my firm's partners who are also extraordinary entrepreneurs in their own right, um, Anil Bussery, who's the co-founder at Workday, and Reid Hoffman, who is the co-founder at LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, they, along with um, several other partners at Greylock, uh, um, Joseph Ancinelli and Ashim Chana in particular, convinced me that instead of uh, you know choosing choosing a company immediately, I should come hang out at Greylock for a year or two, uh, and uh, you know figure out how to be productive for the firm, perhaps start a company, um, and that they'd be a great group of people to uh, sort of get oriented in Silicon Valley with. Um, and and clearly that's an extraordinary opportunity, so uh, I signed up for it, and I'm I've been at the firm for um, a, quite a bit longer than I planned to. <laughs> well, that is quite a quite an opportunity. At the same time, I almost feel like it's the opposite of what we commonly hear. We usually hear people say, go get the operational experience and then join the fund. But I do want to kind of take a step back for people who may not be as familiar with how you guys invest. Tell us a little bit about what stages you're investing in, um, what geographies you're investing in, what verticals. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh we like to say that we are an early stage focused firm um, that's going to give you like um, a white glove artisan experience as a founder um, in terms of uh, uh, a small partnership that deeply cares about people individually and is there to you know sign up to do five or 10 or if we're lucky, 15 years of um, support as the best supporting actor to the entrepreneur in that in that journey. Um, but with the reach of a of a large firm with global resources um, and like SWAT teams across certain functional areas, we think can be really helpful for entrepreneurs. And when we think about those functional areas, we really um, like the idea of like networks is very baked into um, our core belief system. So we think about what the things are that we should 
be better at than any early stage firm, uh, early stage startup, right? And um, those are things where we can leverage, you know, our network or our tribal knowledge. And so, you know, in terms of recruiting, in terms of marketing, and in terms of customer and partner networks, like, uh, those are things that Greylock should have advantages at versus um, any startup we work with, right? Like if you need to hire a certain type of designer or machine learning engineer or want to talk to somebody who's built a certain type of go-to-market motion or partnership or something like that, like I should think that, you know, somebody who has a portfolio of companies, some of whom have been great successes uh, and, and that sort of broader family should be able to reach deeply into that network to help entrepreneurs, but the core components of really product and leadership within a company, those are elements we don't think make sense to provide a significant service around. And like, if anything, we're thought partners to the entrepreneurs. And, and so we, we really like center the business around this early stage focus um, and then extend into uh, what we hope are best in class services in areas we, we think can be real um, where it makes sense that we'd have a structural advantage for the entrepreneurs, right? And then going back to your question on um, on where we invest, um, I feel like the data is always useful here. Uh, 75% of the initial investments in our last fund were seed in Series A. Uh, so the, the early stage focus is real. Um, and I think that's where uh, we, we most enjoy um, working with companies and we have the sort of most... Uh, um, historical understanding and, and advantage as well in an increasingly competitive venture ecosystem. That being said, it's balanced by um, uh, the reason we maintain a, a large fund is these decisions are really hard. And like with humility, we do miss. We miss both because we don't see something um, at the seed or at the A because they everyone's got a set of relationships and, and there is randomness no matter how good we want our coverage to be. Um, uh, and, uh, and the, the main thing is that we want to be involved in extraordinary companies, right? So we see it as additional shots on gold to do larger checks and, um, growth investments where we, where we feel like we have some deep understanding or, or relationship, or we, we just have to be part of a business. So there is, there is that flexibility, but the ethos of the firm is, is definitely early stage oriented. Um, and then to close out your question on, uh, Geography, um, uh, we, I work with founders, I was looking at it the other day, I work with founders that are largely outside of the Bay Area right now, right? That is a departure from how Greylock um, operated, let's say, even eight years ago when I joined the firm. Uh, I, I think there's much more of a, of a, a belief and execution around the idea that there are extraordinary founders everywhere. Um, and the big tech companies are really like helping us by enabling entrepreneurs and, and bringing um, like understanding of scalable technology company building and, and hiring all around the world, right? So if I think about some of the entrepreneurs that I work with um, right now or, or very recently, like... Um, Pierre at Screen was uh, based in Paris when we funded the company, but he worked for Apple, right, which is a company that we are familiar with. Um, some of the founders I work with today that are based in uh, New York and Chicago, um, I know through their Google and Dropbox networks. Um, so I think as companies 
as as technology companies um, get built in more and more places, and the large Silicon Valley companies themselves get more distributed, um, the 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 talent networks become more distributed as well. So we're just going to go where where our customer is, um, and and that's that's pretty much anywhere now. Super. Well, that's a perfect transition because I, I wanted to jump to your investments and your portfolio next and specifically talk about screen since that ties us a bit back to Europe and to France. Um, and you kind of hinted at the fact that when you made the investment, uh, he was based out here. Tell, tell us just a little bit, like, how did that deal come about just given the geography? Um, is that something that you guys are actively pursuing today? Deals that are maybe teams based outside of the US? Yeah, so um, so I, I'm, I'm happy to tell a little bit of the story about Screen. Um, this was a case where uh, like uh, very simply, like you know it when you see it, right? Like Pierre is an extraordinary entrepreneur um, and that would be true if he was sitting in Paris or Shanghai or San Francisco. Um, he also was working in an area that I just pursued on a multi-year basis. Um, uh, we were lucky enough to be part of a company called App Dynamics since the Series A, um, and the the theory of App Dynamics was incredibly simple. It was every company is going to build more software. Um, you need that software to uh, be performant. Right, speed, uh, speed, and performance matters. It's pretty complex to understand the performance of an application. It used to require all sorts of um, specialized engineering resources. You know what? We should collect the data, do the analytics, and serve up dashboards to take that problem off of people's hands. Um, and so, the category that used to be called application performance um, uh, monitoring and management um, is going to be a lot larger, right? So, products in this area existed before, but they weren't that easy to use. They weren't that broadly used. And we just made a bet that you know um, Jody Bonsall and the extraordinary team at Apti could build something better, and it was going to become much more important as a category. This is a really a, a precursor story to that of Screen um, because we we've also had a, a longtime security practice at Greylock. And like, I like to invest in things that are secular, that I think are going to become more important over time. Um, and security broadly is, uh, of course, secular as we just do more on the internet. Um, but uh, but the, the theory was so similar to AppDynamics in that um, every company continues to build more software. That software is increasingly important for businesses. And it's super hard to secure. People struggle with it. They use... Um, uh, you know, huge manual teams if they can afford them. And the experience of trying to secure software uh, today is um, it really doesn't drive confidence, right? What it drives is a very uh, painful slowdown of the software development lifecycle and the release lifecycle. And um, and so I, I was just looking, like I, I kept looking at companies. I probably saw five or six companies over the course of um, two, two and a half years in application security. And I was just looking for an architecture and a technology thesis that I thought would um, make sense to companies in terms of uh, just deployability and scalability, as well as a team that I thought could execute. Because this is kind of a, it does require like pretty um, like specialized engineering skills to build, right? In terms of understanding like what signals are you going to look for in an application that look like malicious, malicious behavior? And then how can you actually protect against that? It's, it's not, you know, building your average web app um, to, today, right? And so Pierre, 
um, both, you know, the inherent qualities that make him like a great entrepreneur, um, uh, velocity, intelligence, like leadership, um, and, and just, uh, um, the, the, I think the, the sort of specialized things that I saw separate from what you might look for in any entrepreneur were two things. One was like a deep domain understanding of the problem as a technologist, right? He was, he was the one guy, um, like in, in Apple trying to interface with a thousand developers at a time, securing the iPhone or iTunes, Right. And it just wasn't a scalable process, even for Apple, who has all the money in the world to spend on security people. Um, so he had, a, he had a really deep understanding of the problem and what it looked like at scale. And then I think the other thing that um, might be counterintuitive for a security company, but I, I hope becomes less so, is that he um, he really carried the design ethos from Apple deeply. Right. I think I think Screen had the most commitment to um, UX quality and developer experience um, and just like front end engineering ability versus, um, you know, any almost any other security company today. Um, and I thought that was really going to be a big advantage for them. And so I think um, for if, if you don't come in with that lens of like what you're looking for, then it can feel like, uh, I don't know, an odd bet, like some some team in Paris working on application security, but um, but I, I think if you have if you if you're coming in with a with a prepared mind, it's it's actually very easy, right? Um, so we uh, um, we were introduced to uh, Pierre and JB and the screen team by several mutual connections, and uh, it was kind of a it was kind of a, um, a competitive and rushed round as everything is these days. So we were. We, we were committed to be part of the company three or four days later. Wow, that's an incredible story. And I think also just given kind of the examples that you gave, um, we can really see why that would be a good fit. And what I love is that you actually, so if I understood correctly, you set out essentially to find a company with a good understanding of the space and that would be solving this type of problem. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say like um, my partner, Jerry Chen at Greylock says, there's no such thing as inception. Right. Like you can't make you can't we don't believe you you like really um, give ideas to entrepreneurs. I think you can inspire them by showing them a market opportunity, but then they're going to go learn it and do, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the understanding and hard work for a decade. Right. Um, and in this area, um, like I didn't we didn't tell Pierre anything new about this space. He already, he already had it right as a, I, obviously they learned a lot and continued to build over the last few years, but, but the, the core of the idea and the mission was already there. Um, and so uh, like, I, I like to think of it as um, the idea of a prepared mind is like, you can, you can certainly go proactively go uh, seek the perfect company working on the idea area you're looking for. But um, the, the way I tend to operate is just, a, it's a little bit different. It's very similar in that, you know, there are certain things that I believe are going to happen, right? I keep a list and there's like five ideas where I'm like, if I could just find the entrepreneurs who are working on this, I would back it tomorrow, right? Um, and then I, you know, I have a, a, um, a set of beliefs about like what the product should look like or what the problem really is for customers. Um but it, it it requires some patience because, like as I, as I mentioned, for two two and a half years, I kept looking around and we we just we saw companies working in these areas, but they um, for one reason or another, like it didn't exactly click for us, 
right? And it's also a very personal decision of like what entrepreneurs you have chemistry with where you you meet them and you're like, okay, we could go on a journey together for the next five years, um, hopefully longer. Uh, and, and so I, I just say like, you know, we, ev- everybody's always uh, at Greylock, everybody has their, their areas where they're like, I'm looking for this company. And the disappointing thing is like, sometimes that company doesn't show up for years. And occasionally, very occasionally, if that continues to happen, then partners will actually in- incubate companies. And, and sometimes we also, um, you know, we'll, we'll lose our, our investing partners to, to founding those companies. Super. Well, I think that's also probably why you, I mean, I, I do feel that as an investor, you're very transparent about um, the types of companies that you're looking for. You have that on your website. You have, you know, go into quite a bit of detail also about the specifics of, of what you want. Um, and we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about that in a second. I do want to follow up a little bit more on your portfolio and actually specifically your anti-portfolio. You, you talked about this um well, you kind of hinted at it when you uh, introduced Greylock in the beginning, saying that sometimes we actually miss deals. Are there some deals today that you feel like, oh, I should have been in that deal? Oh, my goodness. I mean, uh, there are there are plenty of them. Um, where to start? Um, you know what? I'll, I'll talk about um, I'll talk about perhaps two, uh, maybe even three. Right. Um, just because it's it's so. Uh, um, it's good to it's good to look at these things. Some I think there are two types of people in the world, like people who like postmortems and people who don't. I love postmortems. I, I uh, um, I'm, I'm not sure how you learn otherwise, and maybe it's a you know vestige of being a, a product person. The um, we had like every opportunity in the world to to invest in Twilio, and we didn't across like multiple different rounds. And I'm actually going to do a podcast with Jeff. I, I think in a in a month or two. Um, I think one of the one of the major Major um, learnings for me, if I look back at some of the mistakes I feel like I've personally made or Greylock has made, it is not that we misunderstand like the problem or even um, even the the what is special about the entrepreneur uh, or the solution to the problem, right? Like we get the product, and then we will will continually um, we have previously continually tripped on uh, like how large that problem is, right? And um, and how large the market for something is, especially when you think about the timelines with that we're investing in. Like I'm not, I'm not looking for something to be, if, if it's a new market, I don't need to be a billion dollars of TAM and ARR today, right? Like you get out the gates with a million dollars or $2 million of ARR in your first year of sales, you're in great shape as a startup. And so, so I'm looking for, you know, a billion dollars of TAM 10 years from now. Um, as long as you can, as long as you really have like a unique and compelling value proposition in that problem space. Right. And so I think like Twilio is one where like that makes total sense, right? Like how many companies have that problem and the customer concentration and all that. And it sounds, you know, terribly stupid now. Um, but hindsight is twenty twenty, And I, I think like a few, um, experiences like that will really change your view on TAM. And so I think now we like really lean in on the things that we think are secular, whatever we think the market size looks like today. Um, another company in my, in my personal anti-portfolio was, uh, was Benchling. Um, so, uh, uh, Benchling was a company where, um, I, when I met Saji, I, I had like, I just have general intellectual curiosity around the revolution that's happening in um, computational biology and generally in life sciences today, 
right? The um, it, it's it's like nothing short of transformative for our world that we can um, hopefully program the body uh, and and program medicine in a very different way, right? The COVID vaccines have even shown us that it's extraordinary. I think it's so inspiring. Um, and, and so this is an area that you know I I, I was far short of a prepared mind, but I'd been looking at and learning about for a while. And um, when I met Saji, it was just so clear that like, he was a very special entrepreneur. He um, had the beginnings of a product and a business that I felt like were in a secular area that I understood, right? Like one of my themes is collaborative software. Uh, Benchling is collaborative software um, for, uh, for a specialized but increasingly important use case. And, and, and that's how I saw it then. You know, I, I, I feel like I, I screwed up in a few different ways. Um, one was I, it, uh, Saji, I had met uh, right before going out on maternity leave and he was not fundraising. And then um, a week or two after I had my first child, my daughter Kinsley, I get an email from Saji. I shouldn't have been looking at my email to begin with, but I got an email from Saji that's like, hey, you know, I think I'm going to fundraise, right? And so... Um, uh, for anybody who has kids, like the first time you have kids, all the times, but especially the first time you have kids, it's like kind of a rough couple weeks afterward, um, just adjusting to uh, having broken yourself into jail and have some, uh, you know, living creature that's more important than anything else in the world to rely on you all the time. So I, I had a lot on my mind, but I was just like, this guy is extraordinary. Like I have to go after it. And so, um, you know, I, I I did the full court press and and like really tried to understand you know, the customers, the area, the space, and um, pulled my partners together for a partner meeting. And we we ended up actually um, giving Saji terms, but the terms weren't as generous as they should have been. And the reason was like this half step of lack of confidence on the market size and lack of confidence for me personally in stretching in an area where, um, where I, I'd say like, you know, generally in enterprise software, um, I feel pretty good about my knowledge in, in many areas. When you move into a vertical like life sciences, if people ask me, you know, what do you not know? Like, I can't fully answer that question, right? And so there's a little bit of lack of confidence on, on my own side as well. Um, uh, and uh, we just should have we just should have reached on price because whatever the historical um, TAM was, we we could have made the bet on the secular market and like. I should have pushed harder for that, um, but I, I I think like in in all of these um, in, in all of these companies like uh, they're they're extraordinary, and I hope these I hope these founders continue to be like friends of the the Greylock family. But they 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 uh, they really hammer home the uh, market size point, I think, and the and the learning to just work with extraordinary people whenever you see them, um, even when there are many unanswered questions. Wow, I think you said you like postmortems, but I didn't know you were going to be so good at them too. So oh, they hurt though. <laughs> that was that was really refreshing, actually, to kind of hear um, just so transparently um, where you. Um, and so I'm going to finish just with one other question on your portfolio. It's just because everybody in the world is talking about Clubhouse, you've invested in another Clubhouse. I want to know more about this company and. What are they experiencing with this other clubhouse hype? Does it impact them at all? Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, I, I think, uh, um, by the way, I'm a big fan of Paul Davidson and and uh, both clubhouses, actually. Um, the clubhouse that I led an investment in is um, it's project management software. 
Um, and you know, you'll, you'll find I am very consistent in that. I believe people are going to build more software and I believe building good software is very hard. Right. <laughs> and that can, that can show up in how we work together, um, within a company and that is project management, right? How are, um, engineers and product managers and designers in particular, but also everybody else who interacts with, um, the customer and uh, helps inform the product development process. So sales and support, how are they supposed to coordinate like incredibly complex um, uh, uh, builds of product? Um, and like, clearly this is an entire field, but I, I think the, the theory of Clubhouse is, is tools matter, right? And the, your, your tools inform your organization and your communication pattern. And we can build something that is... Um, very specific to software development teams who want to be collaborative and move fast. And so the product is like very fast. Um, it is progressively more powerful. So it starts simple, but you can, you know, manage teams with hundreds of engineers in, in the product. Um, uh, and it's like uh, purpose built for the use case. Um, and and I, I think like there's a little bit of a softer side of Clubhouse, which is like, it, uh, software development is actually a creative process, right? So you want to give people context at the moment they're making creative engineering decisions. And then you want to celebrate the, the work they're doing, right? Like building software is not like working in a factory, right? There's a craft piece, but there's also an art piece. Um, and, and so I, I think all of that goes into the ethos of the software and, um, uh, they, uh, uh, I think we all got very nervous at the beginning of COVID, but, um, you know, they're growing really well. Um, just came out of a record quarter uh, and excited to excited to keep progressing. I'd say in terms of uh, the naming, the naming convention, I mean, like it's pretty, they're pretty different companies, right? Um, one is social audio and one is software project management. So hopefully people don't get too confused, but um, the, the companies know each other. And as you, as you might imagine, it, it has uh, created a little bit of confusion, uh, a significant amount of um, confused users at our top of funnel and for our support teams, but it's, it's all getting resolved. Well, it's a good name. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think we've gotten a chance to kind of hear a little bit about a variety of different topics that you've been interested in, but I really want to dig into the three that you seem to be really chasing at the moment. You've put them on your website. You've gone into a little bit of detail. Um, you talk about SaaS. You talk about stuff for builders and tools. You talk about the future of work. Tell me a little bit more about what specifically you're looking for, what gets you excited, um, and have you stumbled on stuff in this space that you've actually invested in so far? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, um, you know, my, my view on SaaS, like it kind of, it's informed by some, just some business software history, right? Like I, I don't think I have any particular right to be a venture capitalist, except I like entrepreneurs um, and I have some empathy for it. And I'm, I'm learning all the time from extraordinary people and from the tribal knowledge at Greylock. And, you know, if you, if like Greylock has been lucky to be part of some uh, old school enterprise software companies, right? And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like, if you believe the traditional view, there are like, only three categories of enterprise software. Uh, and these were, these were systems of record for like financials and people and customers, right? Uh, but um, I gave a presentation at our LP meeting 
couple years back now that was titled The Cambrian Explosion of SaaS. And it was the idea that there are huge underserved niches in SaaS um, that uh, are yet to be mined. And it's because you know, you have lower cost to serve the customer. You can get to them online. Um, you have lower cost to build software. Uh, Amazon, Google Cloud, um, lots of innovations in the intermediate layers. Um, and then uh, you can actually put these things together with like integration systems um, uh, and identity systems like Okta, right? Like it doesn't all have to be just one monolithic system. You can choose what you want in a best of breed manner. Um, and, you know, a few years back, we were still early in the in in the transition to cloud spend. And there's a there's another decade or so there. Um, but when I when I talk about new school SaaS on my website and what I'm particularly interested in now, like as an early stage investor, yeah, the niches still exist. We'll invest in them. But you're um uh, if I if I'm investing on like a five or ten year horizon, you're already looking elsewhere than the like smaller white spaces that are left, right? And so I'm really excited by the idea that there's going to be um, deeper value from our software. So if you think about traditional enterprise software, a lot of it was like workflows on a database, right? I gotta like enter in my deals in my CRM, and then there's some analytics on it. Um, but uh, but like legitimately, there's there's multi-billion dollar companies that have been created because people build bad workflows on these enterprise databases. And those workflows get fragmented and ossified, and it's just like too expensive and risky for companies to be constantly reinventing their core systems, right? Like that's kind of the story of UiPath, right? You're like fixing bad workflows in enterprise software. And so the other view to take is that like, okay, the next generation of software is going to do more for us, right? It's going to actually help you collaborate across um, departmental silos. It's going to automate more of those super repetitive things that you were doing in software. It's going to be, to use a, uh, a very predictable term, it's going to predict things. It's going to use AI um, in, in much smarter ways to make us much more efficient at our jobs. And so I do think that there's um, still an emerging category of SaaS that is really uh, deeper workflows uh, um, across teams. Um, and, uh, and and I, I think the combination of that with like new new business models, right? Like freemium product-led growth. Um, uh, these are huge changes to go to market that people are, have just begun to, to figure out. And I think the last thing that I think is super interesting in SaaS is um, things that didn't look like software categories before or software problems are becoming them. So I think this is easiest to understand from examples, right? So you now have um, companies like um, Pilot for bookkeeping or um, Rippling that will, you know, combine a bunch of software categories, but also run like your benefits and your PEO, right? Those are things that have traditionally been services companies um, are, are served by services companies. And they're really tricky companies to build in terms of like problem, problem definition and ongoing management such that you have like tech company margins and scalability. But, um, but I think people are going to figure it out. Um, and it's like that opens up the TAM for software considerably. Um, another example would be uh, my friend Alexander Wang's company, Scale, Scale.ai for like labeling and machine learning, Right. To be clear, there's people on the back end there. That doesn't make the company not valuable. It just means it's a different type of company to build that's a software and, and people hybrid. And um, I think people are getting, entrepreneurs are getting increasingly ambitious about taking on the like 
operational complexity of building these these types of companies. So I think there's a there's a there's like new shapes of SaaS company that are um, emerging that I'm really excited about. Wow, fascinating. Um, that is there's a ton of stuff to 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 dig into in the SaaS space. But I actually want to turn my attention also to um, one of the other topics that you have um, kind of listed as a as a core for you, which is future of work. Um, and really kind of dive into what are you excited about? What have you seen as uh, a result of COVID, if anything? Is this something that was there? Were you always interested in this space? Or is this something that you really think has picked up over the last year? Um, just tell us a little bit about what what's happening in, in the future of work. Yeah, absolutely. And these categories all have... Um, all have uh overlap, right? So like there's one piece of the future of work um, that is uh, enabling people to just um, like create and collaborate better, right? The entire category of like productivity tools or even, for example, Figma in our portfolio, which we did the AN in 2015, like that was a, as a while back, right? But now you can really see with their la- launch of FigJam, like why it's a future of work company, even beyond like the creation um, tools that they've they've built and the collaboration problems they solve between designers and developers. So so going back to you know what do I think is happening in SaaS? I think all software enterprise software is going to be collaborative in the future. Um, and so Figma is an example of that, and that's something we've been hunting for a long time. Clearly, uh, the last year has been just like the most extraordinary um, dump truck of problem statements for technology companies. Um, and I, I hugely believe in um, remote and hybrid but as very different things, but both of them as, um, you know, things that uh, modes of work that are economic opportunity equalizers, right? They enable people to um, have the freedom to do their best work and have more flexibility. And uh, I think that is hugely powerful. Um We've invested in a series of companies in the area here. So as I mentioned, Figma, um, Remotion, which is a virtual office um, uh, for remote and hybrid work, Clubhouse, which I mentioned, and then um, Coda is like an application platform and doc for your team. Um, But but I think we're like, this is this is in, in a way that hasn't been true in my professional life. We're in the wild west of how people work together. Right. Um, And uh, I think, you know, this is interesting to me from a number of perspectives. Uh, Intellectually, I've always just been interested in like, you know, what makes some companies succeed and not. Um, A lot of it is like leadership and talent and like how you are um, able to design your organization. Um, So from an intellectual perspective, I've always been attracted to that problem. But like the move to hybrid and how unprepared um, companies are for that as they think through questions like the um, like the tooling problem, like the second class citizen problem, like the coordination problem. Okay, if we're going to be hybrid, um, what days a week are we going to be in the office? Do you let people choose? Um, how are people going to feel like they are part of the uh, team and the team decisions when they're out of the office? Um, do people progress? What impact does that have in our culture? Like, I think the questions, how do we make decisions quickly? People are still very worried about the ability to um, unblock one another and move creatively in a, in a remote or a hybrid setting. And so I think the fact that most of our companies are moving forward in a, um, in a hybrid mode, despite all these challenges, tells you just how badly... Um, uh, uh, workers want it. 
and how powerful it is in terms of economic opportunity and agility and cost, honestly, for, for companies. Um, because like the challenges are real. And so I think there's, there's lots of continued opportunity here that we'll, we'll invest in. Um, the other part of it is like now everybody's experienced it, right? Like we're in this really cool compounding cycle of, um, user, um, uh, just like user acceptance of new tools for the world of remote work. Like every, every human being in the world that is a knowledge worker can now reason about Zoom, right? And so you, you sort of broke through the resistance to adoption of, of certain classes of tools. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a great driver of the compounding cycle. The other is like everybody who's a builder, now that they've experienced, you know, a, a uh, screwy type of remote work because we were all forced into our caves. And I think that's not really what remote and hybrid work is going to look like in the future. Um, it's just a particularly bad flavor of it. Um, you know, they've now experienced this problem and, and so many people, there's just massive innovation. So many people are inspired to go work on it. Um, and so I, I think like we're, we're just going to see a lot more, um, a lot more here. Super. And I think, You've touched on kind of a lot, a lot of different elements, but what do you feel like? Because I'm wondering, I just feel like all of a sudden the ecosystem and a lot of entrepreneurs are chasing this opportunity. You're absolutely right. They got a flavor of it. We're totally in the far West. Like people don't know what they're doing. And so there's a ton of opportunity. But what are companies that are, have you seen companies that are making huge mistakes about what they think is the future of work? I don't think we're we're experiencing it yet, right? Um, like I, I think that there it is going to be painful, and there are going to be adjustment costs like in the coming months um, as people try to come back into the office and deal with these and like actually experience the cultural and coordination problems, right? I think um, what what we're seeing is companies are. Uh, they're thoughtful about the risks they're taking, but they're saying all those risks into account, like we still want to do hybrid, right? Because we talked to employees and we thought about the costs and we also thought about the advantages. And many of them like really have been moving in this direction for a long time, right? And so an example would be Okta is a former portfolio company. Um, we did the Series B there, what now feels forever ago in like 2012. Uh, and Todd at Okta has been talking about dynamic work for a long time. Um, and so the way Okta is going to operate is like no assigned desks. And Okta is a reasonably sized company now, right? Thousands of employees. Um, and, and so uh, I, I think many companies have settled on some form of like, um, you know, digital front door uh, hybrid uh, motion. And they're, they're just like trying to get us prepared for um, the challenges as they can. Um, but when... I, if if I try to brainstorm for huge mistakes, I think it would just be like blindness to the challenges, right? Or um, assuming, I think two things are are um, probably mistakes. One is uh, when when companies um, uh, like want things to go back to exactly as they were. Um, I think that will be very challenging from a talent perspective. Actually, um, like if if the default for many startup technology companies in particular include some sort of um, location flexibility. And that matters to a lot of people. If you are refusing to do that at all, it is going to be a recruiting disadvantage, right? Um, so, you know, there are, there are leaders who are very 
sort of in office culture oriented and and they just need to understand that that's, that's gonna there's gonna carry a recruiting cost um, uh, and and sort of the opposite extreme of um, doing doing f- remote requires a different kind of management and a different communication pattern right so doing that without investing in it um, I think is is also going to be tough um, in terms of figuring out like well, how are people going to resolve problems, right? Like, um, how do we build culture? Uh, how do we manage the time zones? Um, how do we create uh, artifacts of decisions and disseminate them? Like, there's there's a lot to think through here. And so I think when people assume, like, oh, we're just engineers, like, we, you know, we use Slack, we'll do remote, like, it, it's not actually that simple. So those are the, probably the two categories of mistakes I've seen. Um, but I, I will plug here, uh, I, I think... Um, I, I see so many individuals uh, in remote teams experimenting with these tools, like remotion, right? If you're if you're lonely and you miss your team and you want the vibe of being in the office, then you're going to go get your teammates on remotion. Um, and so I do think that the bottoms up um, experimentation with these tools as as um, individual workers and managers experience these challenges, like the solutions will bubble up in good companies. Super. And I think probably I want to end on a note um, that's a little bit probably more just about you mentioned several times just like how passionate you are about working with entrepreneurs. You talk about we can kind of feel the passion even when you talk about some of the people that you've worked with, some of the stories. Um, So now I just want to know, can you give some concrete advice for especially Station F? We have a community of really early stage entrepreneurs. What do you think? is really meant, builds these successful companies that you guys are built, are investing in today? Yeah. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, we recently had a discussion about like what we look for in entrepreneurs. Um, uh, and a lot of it is not about background, right? I mentioned like there, there's certainly areas of technology where like being a, being a chief architect at a database company is very useful experience if you're going to go build a um, cloud data warehouse, for example, right? Um, but there's a there's an enormous host of extraordinary companies that are built by people who don't have that much background at all, right? And so in our in our portfolio, like I don't know, Facebook and Figma and Dropbox are great examples. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, we had this discussion recently at Greylock about what do we look for um, in, in especially entrepreneurs who have less experience. And I, th- I think that might be interesting to share. Um, the, the journey of company building, like one of the reasons I'm, I'm so inspired about working with entrepreneurs is I think it's like the fastest it's the fastest way to get something done that has impact, right? That really attracts me. The other thing is it's the fastest way um, I've ever seen anybody grow, right? The difference between, um, and uh, as an example, the difference between Evan Reiser, who's the co-founder and CEO of a company in our portfolio called Abnormal, um, which does uh, uh, malicious like email detection um, with AI. Uh, You know, he's a couple years into his company and like, uh, the way he has learned and grown as a leader across all the dimensions of company building is is extraordinary, right? And his company is like 10x bigger than it was last year. 
Um, and that's what happens when your company works. And so if I, if I go back, like, um, if companies are scaling at three, five, 10x in a year, uh, like to keep up with that, can you as a person do it? Um, and, and, like we we tend to say like you're most of what you're going to do as an entrepreneur even as a second or third time entrepreneurs who I also work with um it's all new right so we're looking for people who um really have like a steep learning curve um and then you know so there's how we assess it but if if i think about like what i would say to other um to entrepreneurs about like how to develop it I think a, a huge thing is actually in like the quality of somebody's listening, right? And um, like it, it's probably two two pieces of advice I, I'd give. One is keeping the bar for talent exceptionally high because that is all you have at the early stages and to be really ambitious about the people that you personally choose to work with um, because it, it's just not going to work if you don't have an A-plus team uh, because so many, so many of the odds are stacked against you. Um, and then uh, the second piece is to um, is to be really thoughtful about listening to customers and to people that you seek advice from, right? And to figure out how to make the most of those conversations. And maybe I'll just give it a little bit more color because I think like listen better is like hard advice to understand. Um, uh, there are there are many ways to think about like. Um, how much you adhere to the mission in a company. Um, and I think entrepreneurs are often like, well, I have a vision and, um, and like, we just need to keep building until the vision is more complete. Uh, and I think that you can both have a deep seated, broader mission in your company and then be very open-minded about what the exact solution is. Right. And this probably applies more in the B2B space than on the on the consumer side. Um, but a, a mistake I repeatedly see is people working on a problem area and like just not iterating really based on customer feedback because they, um, you know, they hear they hear customers or users being nice and they think that's like uh customers and users getting value or customers or users being compelled by the product that they have built. Um, and I'd say like, if there is any doubt in your mind about whether or not people really want what you've built, ask again, right? And think about building something that's very different and be open-minded about that. Um, because I, I think it, that's more often a mistake than not that people are not really listening to the customer and more focused on sort of their opinion about uh, how it should work. I love that. I think that's a perfect note to end on. We've covered so much ground. We've gotten a chance to go into trends, into a ton of company stories, um, into your anti-portfolio, and now into some really great concrete feedback for entrepreneurs. Uh, Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And congratulations on all the great work uh, you guys are, are doing at Station F and good luck to all the entrepreneurs there. I hope to meet many of you. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a guest, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. Finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Deezer, and Google. All right. See you soon.